Well, good morning again. It's great to see you. Thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium this morning, a YMCA with newly resurfaced floors. So if you're wondering, does it seem brighter in here? Why is it squeakier? That's what's happening. All right. But really glad that you're here. My name is Jamie. It's my absolute privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. And so if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I'll be out in the lobby afterwards. Would love that, that opportunity. This morning, we are continuing a series through the great book of Acts. It's the series called Witnesses, where we get to pay attention, we get to study and examine all the ways for the last couple thousand years that Jesus has been building his church. He promised that he would do it, and so we get to simply be witnesses of that. And at the same time, he invites us to bear witness, to showcase the good news of who Jesus is. And one of the ways that we do that as a church is through church planting. And so as we've been studying in the book of Acts, one of the beautiful things is it's the start, it's sort of the history of the church, and one of our core convictions as a church here, as Crosspoint, is to continue to be about the work of new churches. The goal is not to just build things here to as large as they can be, but we want to see people connect and then also to be able to send people out. And so before we get into the text this morning, um, I want to give you an update on one of our church plants. Um, many of you guys know if you were here for... Well, if, you, if you've shown up in the last couple years, this might be new to you, all right? In the fall of 2016, uh, we commissioned the Sullivan family. It's Brian and Karina Sullivan, and they moved down to Jupiter, Florida to plant Crosspoint Jupiter. And them and their, their family, they were part of Crosspoint Winter Park from day one. In fact, Brian and I both served at Crosspoint Lake Nona as interns, uh, which meant like we got to go get coffee for people and stuff. Like, that was like our, literally our first assignment, all right? And so uh, we just developed a friendship, and by God's grace, they partnered with this work in Winter Park and served here faithfully, and then God called them. And so we've always prayed that God would connect people and then send them out, and we knew that there would be a pain and a loss in that and yet a celebration. So we're so thankful for them. And what I want to do is be able to um, give you guys a bit of an update. Not too long ago, some of you might be familiar with this, the church planning network that we're part of called Acts 29 put together a video kind of showcasing their story. So I want you to watch this. So whether you knew the Sullivans well or that you're like, I don't actually know who these people are that you're talking about, this will help catch you up to speed and then we'll hear um, from them here momentarily. But just watch this video and it's an opportunity for us to, again, witness the ways that God is at work building his church. I think my dream for the city is that people would worship the creator as opposed to the creation. That people move from a life of consumption to contribution. God continually humbles me not to be self-righteous towards things that I saw as God's as well, but to enter into it and come alongside people. I believe that there was a God, um, but it just, had no implication and in my life and just I kind of had the American dream at 25, 26. I, I was kind of like, is this it? My name's Brian Sullivan. I'm married to Karina. I was born and raised in St. Louis. I've been a church planter since 2009. I served as executive pastor where I helped plant Cross Point Winter Park in Orlando. In 2016, we moved down to Jupiter, Florida to plant another congregation down in the South Florida area. My cousin had become a Christian the year before. I began to ask more questions about, well, who is God? And as I was reading the Gospels and, and reading about Jesus, it was vastly different than 
who I thought Jesus was. And, and I was fascinated because it seemed that Jesus was always with and compassionate and um, encouraging people who were like me. He started going to the journey, and so I went with him. It was a message that was like, oh, I'm sinful. And I went home that night and just said, like, God, like, show me what it means to live my life for you. Okay, how do you go from that to being a pastor, I think I was given a lot of opportunities from kind of the get-go that I would just show up to. When a place changes your life like that, like, I was like, you guys want me to wash the toilets? I'll wash the toilet. What do you want me to do? I loved this place. I love these people that God had used. There was this desire for more people to know Jesus and in helping other people know Christ, I knew him more and I believed more in his promise that he will build his church because I was seeing it happen all around me. In the church planting world, like I became a Christian um, at the journey, which is a, you know obviously a part of Acts 29. I just thought that's always what you do. If you're a Christian, if you're a church, that's what you do is plant more churches. It's just what I've always known. I never thought of myself as going to plant a church and be the lead pastor. I was like, that's, that was always for other, other guys. I always had the mentality as like, we plant churches. And so I was a part of this church that we helped plant and then send everybody out and they go plant churches. I never viewed myself as that. Fast forward eight years to go plant the church. I was like, oh, God's been training me for the last eight to 10 years to go plant a church. It was, I was almost like awakened to what he was already doing. People really love it here, they, and they want you to love it. They're really passionate about the area and celebrate what's good about the area. A lot of young families that moved here for the outdoors, everything revolves around the water. And so, yes, people work and have jobs, but they work and have those jobs to be able to do stuff on the water. But there's also this just busyness to it. When the evening comes or when the weekend comes, they just want to check out and go do what they moved here to do. You're in this place of rest. You're in this place of relaxation. Why are you so exhausted? Why are you not satisfied? Point them to the one that does satisfy, the one that does bring rest, the one that is making all things new. And a very practical thing that we do is meet on Sundays. A culture that lives for the weekend and is just going, 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 even on the weekend, God is the one that gave us the creation. We're gonna set apart a day as holy and we're gonna worship Him. And at Crosspoint, we talk about to help people connect their story to God's story. Nothing that has happened or nothing that we do is outside the influence of Acts 29. What has that influence been? I think first and foremost, it's been just support, like brotherhood, that, that people that know us and, and care about us and come alongside us in an environment of, of learning, uh, whether it's, again, conferences or cohorts and to be equipped. And I never felt like I was alone. It's a phone call with, with Brad Jones. It's talking with Aldo. It's um, catching a meeting with Rodney. We're churches that plant churches. And to literally see that flesh out over 13 years, um, that just gives us life. That's awesome. So thank you so much for the work that you guys are doing. I want to invite the Sullivan to be able to come up here for a moment, invite Brian. Um, man, it's so good to see you, and thanks for joining us uh, th this yeah. morning, um, and thank you guys for the work that, that you're doing. So I don't want to just give you space here for a couple moments. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you guys. 
it's good to be it's good to be home. Good to be back. So, thanks for having us. And um, literally, I wanted to come up here just to stand here and just say that thank you to you. Um, we get so much support and encouragement and help from Cross Point Winter Park. You are our primary supporters. Um, and I know Jamie and Ethan and Brian and the elders and the board know that. Um, but the financial support we get, the um, phone calls to have people to call and say like, hey, we're, this is going on or we're struggling here or we're doing this. To have that, um, it's been ongoing and consistent for two years. Um, and we just want to say thank you for it because we thank them a lot, um, but we want to thank you because you're the, it's your giving, it's your support, it's you being the church here that has allowed us to go um, and continue to the mission to point more people to Jesus. So just, we want to thank you for what you do every day here and the, and the sacrifice and the giving that you um, have. And so um, it, it, it has shaped everything that we've done. So the financial support, the input, like, um, you don't know, it's like, y'all pay for our HR. So I don't have to worry about payroll and all those, all those sorts of things. And it really has freed us up to what God has gifted and called us to do. Um, there's a church planner. Uh, he's from the Dominican in South Florida. This guy's like planted like 20 churches. And he, I was with him the, a couple weeks ago. And he goes, he goes, man, I just need to, when I'm not fishing and feeding, um, I'm out of my element. And so what you guys have allowed us to do is to fish, to go and meet people and hear their stories and, and hear their struggles and then bring them the good news of Jesus and then invest, feed into people's lives and help them learn and grow. So your support, your giving, what you guys are doing here has freed us up um, to do that. And it's, and it's happening. Um, there is, in the video, there is a cool looking kid with, not a kid, he's 30 something, with the, be with the beard, the bearded guy. Um, we were at their wedding last night and it was one of those things, we moved to uh, Jupiter and quickly met Lena, uh, who was the wife, and then she started dating this guy, Corey, um, and she was at a, at a hard point in her life and Karina just started meeting with her every week really and just investing in her and, and helping her unpack who Jesus is and what does it mean to follow her. And then she starts dating Corey who, um, considered himself a Christian, but hadn't been to church in over 10 years. And he showed up for the first time at our first kind of quasi Easter service. He walks in and Cross Point Jupiter was the first church he'd been to since high school. Um, and then so fast forward a year and a half and we we're at their wedding last night and they're following Jesus and, and there. So it's like That's real awesome. people and real lives. So thank you for your support. And um, it's allowed us to establish and, and, and our prayer this, for this year is to develop, to grow. And, and that's being fleshed out right now because um, there's a service starting in like 45 minutes down there, and we're not there. So I'm not preaching. Jeremy is a, a guy that's a part of the church. He's preaching, and uh, Karina's invested in Joe and Ashley in their leading worship. Um, we pay Pat to be our church life coordinator, so she's a point person for Sunday morning. It's your support that's allowing all that stuff to happen. So I just want to Thank you, and I hope you're really, really encouraged, and keep doing what you're doing here because it's making an impact even further than you know. So just thank you. Awesome. Thanks, man. We're so encouraged. So we'd love the um, opportunity. I, I, want, I want to pray for you guys. Um, Karina, would you mind coming up, up here? So it's so great to see you all. Thank you for your investment uh, there. Thank you for your investment in all, all the years here. Um, so let, let, me, let me pray for you, for you guys. So Father, thank you so much for the Sullivan family. Thank you for the ways that, God, they have so faithfully served you in a variety of contexts, God, from up in St. Louis to Cross Point Lake Nona, um, to here for so many years at Cross Point Winter Park, and now with Cross Point Jupiter. And God, we just give you praise for that. Thank you for stories, even reminders at a wedding last night, um, God, of your faithfulness, of how you're building your church. God, thank you that 
yeah, as Brian said, there's a service that's getting ready to happen here in a short while, um, and they've seen leaders raised up and people meeting you. And um, so, God, we just give you praise for that. We would ask for more, um, mm-hmm. God, that you would continue to raise up laborers for your harvest. You said, God, that the, the harvest is plentiful, but the, the laborers, the workers are few. And so, God, would you... It's not a harvest issue, God. There's a laborer issue. And so I pray that you would raise up those workers in and around the Jupiter area, um, God. And as you do that, would you continue to do that here and all over the world? And so we're just so thankful for the story that we get to be part of. Thank you for the Sullivans. Bless them. Bless their, their marriage, uh, their, their children. Um, God, encourage them in the gospel. Uh, church planting um, is full of all kinds of joys and celebrations and uh, some difficulty and some, some dark days and days wondering, like, what did I get myself into? And um, so, God, I just pray that that we as a church family would remember to uphold them in prayer, that they would very practically and tangibly feel love, even if there's some distance that separates us, that they would know that there's a whole group of people that are cheering them on and praying for them and rallying behind them and that we love them, God. Um, And the love that we have for them pales in comparison to the love that you have for them. And so may they feel that love and that affection and know, God, that you are rejoicing over them and the work that they're doing. And we pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So, love you guys. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's so exciting to be able to hear, and as we've been looking in the book of Acts, this is the reality, like these sort of things are continuing to play out, that it's not just a story that happened a couple thousand years ago, it's a story that continues to play out, that men, women, and children are, are meeting King Jesus, that they're having their lives transformed, and oftentimes we wonder, well, like, what does transformation actually look like? And so this morning, we are going to get this amazing opportunity to kind of dive into this text out of Acts chapter 9, and so as our practice is, we want to journey through books of the Bible, so I would encourage you, if you got a Bible, get this out, go to Acts chapter 9. If you didn't bring a Bible, a couple options for you. There's some paperbacks on the tables in the back there, those high tops. Get up, grab one of those, all right? Or go to cpwp.life on your phone, swipe over the second card that says message notes. Anything that's up on the screen this morning will be listed there. There's opportunities to take notes. You can email them to yourself afterwards. Would encourage you to be able to, to follow along. But we are a culture, I think, that we love transformation. Like, we long for it. There's something within the human heart. Like, it resonates with us. And so when we hear stories of transformation, I mean, so even, I don't really even know this couple that they're talking about, you know, and to know, oh, wow, and they got married last night. Like, there's something in us that's like, wow, that's, that's amazing. There's, there's these stories of transformation, not of perfect people, but of people who've met Jesus, who've confessed their sin, they're clinging to him. And the story we're gonna be in this morning uh, is a story of a man named Saul. And he goes from a persecutor of the church to a planter of Jesus' church. He's literally the apostle, becomes the apostle Paul, moves out all over the world to plant churches. But there is this longing, right? So I wanna ask this one, like what does transformation look like? And my guess is one of the things as a culture, you've probably participated in this. I'll admit I've watched a handful of these episodes, but for about five years or so, uh, there was a show called Fixer Upper that ran, all right? And so even if that wasn't your thing, you know that these types of shows exist all over certain networks on, on television. And it usually involves an assessment of like this dilapidated piece of property or this home. It's like, does anybody, would anybody even live in that kind of thing? And then there's this work that goes in. If you know how the stories go, right, it tends to get worse before it gets better. You're like, you look at this thing and then they gotta start tearing in. There's this deconstruction that begins to happen. 
you sort of confront the realities of what it's gonna take to see transformation, but then you get that moment, and at the end of the show, as they've strung you along, and you're like, wow, how many more commercials are there? And then you get to the end, right? And there's this big reveal, and the people who own the home get to walk in, and they're just wowed and amazed, and, and there's this transformation that, that occurs. And this is something the human heart, like we long for, we love those stories. Because deep down, if we're honest, we all long for that sort of transformation. And so this isn't this morning just a story about the Apostle Paul. And this is a story that you're invited into and I'm invited into. And it's our story. If you're a follower of Jesus, this transformation has occurred and is occurring. Now, when I did a quick Google search of Fixer Upper, here's one of the things I found was interesting. This is just the description that, that came up. I pulled this line. It says, Chip and Joanna save homes that look hopeless renovating the imperfect and revealing them as what they were always intended to be. And I think there's a lot of truth in that of just what happens when a person encounters the living God, when we meet the risen Lord Jesus. It moves from the realm of just being about a home, all right, but it's something, renovating the imperfect and revealing them as what they were always intended to be, that God has built you into a home that the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence in, and you and I, if we're followers of Christ, are being shaped more and more into what we were always created to be. And so this morning, let's look at this text and see the ways that God brings about transformation. So let me read the first two verses. We get the context here. This is on the heels of this amazing like transformation conversion stories that have happened in chapter eight that Philip gets sent to the Samaritans, all right? And so there's this work that's happening there. Then he gets sent out into the desert where he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. We looked at that last week. And so it means the gospel is going now to Africa and that they trace the, the history of that church back to this man. So all sorts of impact. Like you never know who you're going to impact, all right? We know the stories of some of the more famous people. Like we don't know who led Billy Graham to the Lord, but we know his name, right? And it's the calling here for all of us. Like, will we be faithful? You may be well-known, you may not, but there's a call to be faithful and to see the impact of the gospel going forth. And so when we pick up in chapter nine, it says, but Saul. And I'll interchangeably, Saul, who's oftentimes referred to as Paul, all right, it's a Jewish name, Roman name, those, those sorts of things. But here he is, and it says, but Saul. So there's all these good things. It's like somebody talking to you, and they're like, hey, yes, how's your day? It's this, this, this. And then you go, but, and you kind of know, oh, like, it's about to turn. Like, there's something negative that's happened, something that maybe is less than you would like it to be. And that's what we find here. It says, in the midst of all this amazing stuff, it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is what the church was called at that time, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. All right, so we gotta just stop there and just look at what is the condition of this man named Saul, all right? We know from our study through the book of Acts so far, he presided over, he rejoiced in, he was part of Stephen, a follower of Jesus, one of the chosen seven to help serve the church. He presided over his stoning, like he would, Stephen was put to death and Saul was there. He smiled upon it. He literally held the coats of the men. He said, they're throwing rocks at him. He's like, here, I'll hold your jacket. And he stood there and he watched. 
and there was an exuberance for him because he did not want this movement this way. He didn't want the Jesus followers to thrive and to continue. And the language that is being used here, all right, is about, it's, it, the, the language is such of a, about like a wild animal. It's snorting or it's like on the prowl, all right? I mean, so really what you have to think of here is this, this is sort of this wolf that is a ready, ready to attack. I mean, this is the language of verses one, verses one and two in chapter nine. And there is an intentionality here because Damascus is not just a couple minutes away. This would have taken him about a week's worth of travel just to get there. And so you have to be bent on a particular type of destruction to say, I'm going to travel for an entire week to get to this place to go in and find these Christians so that I can haul them off to be punished and some to be killed. That's, that's what he's bent on doing. So the question in all of this, like, why in the world? Like, why is he responding that way? Like, what would drive this man to do it? And then for us to not look in self-righteousness and say, I can't believe he would do that sort of thing, but to realize, what are some of the ways that we get caught up? And maybe it's not us traveling a week's distance to see people arrested. I don't think that was your week. But there's these false narratives that we can buy into And so when we think about why, what actually is driving Saul here? This is my study this week. I came across, it was in John Stott's commentary in the book of Acts. And in it, uh, he begins talking about, uh, he quoted um, the psychiatrist, uh, Carl Jung. You might be familiar with him. Here's, Here's what he said. He says, fanaticism, and I think we would say at this point, Saul, he's pretty fanatical, right, is only found in individuals who are compensating secret deaths that I believe that there's something going on here. As we get to know Saul, or later Paul's story, we realize that there were some things that he had a great confidence in. In fact, he tells the story of his conversion in several different places. Later in the book of Acts, that Luke, who's writing this, tells it two more times. That's how significant this is, all right? And also, Paul, as he's writing various letters after he becomes a Christian, all right, he writes to a church in Philippi. One of the things he says in Philippians chapter three, verses four to six, look at the way he describes himself. He's like, listen, here's my pedigree. I mean, he's a brilliant man. He was successful. He was in the know. And he says this, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, all right? He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he's like, I have more, all right? He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, He says, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he's like, my track record, blameless. That's his description. Apart from meeting Jesus, here's how he viewed himself at the time. So when we're here in Acts chapter 9, these opening verses, he's breathing like these threats. He's got this murderous intent, this rage. He's like a wolf that's on the prowl. He is seeking this destruction of Jesus and his church, all right? He can't understand why in the world people would be devoted to the way. You remember Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And that, like Saul couldn't wrap his mind around that. He didn't understand what was happening. This was blasphemous to him. What we learn later on is Saul's story is told, and we'll look at some particulars around this more in a moment. But in Acts 26, verse 14, it says this, And when we had all fallen to the ground, this is later in the story, and he's recounting what we're going to read further in Acts 9. He says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus' words to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And 
here's what I believe is happening. Here's what it means in regards to secret doubts. We look at this story sometimes as we get further into it, and sometimes even in Christian vernacular, it'll be like, oh, did you have a Damascus Road experience? And people who don't know the Bible will be like, what in the world are you talking about, right? But what, what is typically meant by that is sort of this radical conversion, all right? And there's some amazing things that happen. I'm not knocking that. But I, I don't think it's quite as, as in the moment as we sometimes think. Because as Saul or Paul t- retells his story later on, he's like, yes, there was this amazing encounter with Jesus, but the transformation, the language here of this goad, it, it's literally like this sharp stick, and somebody would use it to kind of poke at an animal to get them moving, to get them to speed up, to get them to move in the right direction, and sort of this just kind of jabbing them. And he reflects back, and he knows in his heart of hearts that he's had some doubts. I think he's wondered, is my pedigree enough? Is it enough to actually have a right standing with God? He knows, have to imagine, that he saw Stephen dying and Stephen is praying, Father, forgive them. That had to have been seared into his mind. I think these were one of the, the sharp sticks, so to speak, that the Lord Jesus was using in Saul's life. And the language here, Saul retells, he's like, I was kicking against it. I didn't want anything to do with that, trying to get that away. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to think about it. And if we're honest, there are secret doubts that plague us because what was happening here is Saul had built a God in his image, all right? He had built a God in a particular way that he thought, this is my understanding, this is right, and I will fight for it. And now you might not go and construct the same God that Saul did in this pharisaical sort of way, but we all have our picture of the good life, something that we think, this is what I have to have. I've got to have this job. I've got to have this amount of money. I've got to have this security. I've got to have this relationship. I've got to have this friendship. I've got to have no stress or anxiety. Whatever it happens to be, we build this up, and if we're honest, though, there are these doubts that plague us. We're like, is that really all this world is? You heard it in the video that we just watched. Brian talking about it in a moment of honest reflection of like at 25 or 26, I kind of had everything the world has to offer. Is that enough? We have these secret doubts, and God in his grace, Jesus in his grace, has been poking and prodding Saul to get his attention and here's what I believe. God is still doing those same things. That there are ways here this morning, like as you reflect on your life, that there's ways he's trying to get your attention. He's trying to get my attention. Will we actually dial into that or will we kind of kick against it? God is pursuing you. Both if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're like, is he pursuing me? You're here this morning, all right? So he's at work in your life. But even for those of us that are here as followers of Jesus, he wants more for you. And so he continues to press. He continues to use his word to sort of expose things, to, to cut us open. And it's not fun, all right? It's no fun being exposed, all right? But there's things that he wants to cut out of your life. There's a cancer that he wants to make sure that he gets rid of because he actually wants us to flourish. And so how can we move past these sort of secret doubts that we possess? And here's where we see the story go. I love what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, it's this. 
we have a view of God and sometimes it's constructed based on like what we think or what we think the good life is and we need to get something bigger. We need to encounter the real God as he presents himself, a God that can speak against us, a God can, that can tell us that we're wrong, not a God that's completely compliant with whatever we happen to think he should be like, all right, where we pick and choose our favorite characteristics of God and build something that way. We need a God that's bigger. And so 1 John 3, 20 says this, for whenever our heart condemns us, when there are those secret doubts, He says, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. That's the God that you and I need and that's the God that Saul needs. He didn't know it yet, but that's what he needed. He needed a God that was bigger than his heart because if we're honest, the heart will end up condemning us. And so we need something that's bigger and this is what we get. So look with me at verses three to nine. There's this beautiful confrontation and it's in love that Jesus shows up and he confronts Saul, and he literally knocks him on his backside, all right, to get his attention. Look at verses three to nine and what this transformation looks like. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul needs an encounter with the risen Lord. He needs somebody, he needs to encounter the real God. And if we're gonna experience transformation, that is what I need, that is what you need. And it starts out by saying, why are you persecuting me? All right, so there's this light and there's this loud voice and there's this moment and this voice calls out to Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't know who it is at this point, but we know how this is playing out. And here's what's so fascinating. As a Christian, this should bring incredible comfort to you because here's what's being communicated by the Lord Jesus. He is so united with his people. Like you go and read Romans 6, 4 to 5, where we're buried with him in baptism. Like we, and this is like put to death with Jesus, and then we're raised to walk in a newness of life. It's this way that the scriptures showcase for us. Like we have this union with Christ. And so when men, women, and children, followers of Jesus, followers of the way are persecuted, when they're put in prison, when some are murdered, when there are some in, you know, around that part of the world that are dealing with the loss of loved ones because of their commitment to Jesus, Jesus views that as an affront to him. It's as if you were persecuting him. It's because it's the image throughout the scriptures, right, of the oneness that he is the groom and we as the church are his bride. And whenever you're at a, at a wedding, there's these vows that are made and there's this oneness that happens. And so whatever is done to Jesus' bride that is the church is being done to him and it pains him and it angers him in a righteous way, that is his response. So for one, just know this, God is not indifferent to your pain. Whatever you brought in here this morning, if you're a follower of him, like he is dialed into it. He cares deeply for you, that there's this union that we have with Christ. And at the same time, Jesus would teach us, like in Luke chapter 11, the reality of this, that those, like kind of, he's basically saying like there's no middle ground. He's like, you're either with me or you're against me. 
And so those of us that are not followers of Jesus, the scriptures are very clear in love telling you, unless you've been reconciled to God, you stand currently as an enemy of God. And you might not feel that way. You might be like, no, I'm just kind of indifferent. I'm kind of just trying to figure things out. But the scriptures are very, very clear. In love, you need to know you're standing, that you're separated from God, that you're dead in your sins, that you actually are an enemy of a holy God. And that is not a place that you want to be. And so Saul says, or Saul hears Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? That there's this union that's happening. He's realizing, oh, I'm on the wrong side of this equation. And so then he asks, as anyone would, like, who, wait, who are you, Lord? All right? And I don't believe, at this moment, he's not calling Lord as in, like, Lord Jesus, because he doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus. It's this term of respect. I mean, if you heard this loud voice and had that encounter, you'd be, you know, you just, you get real polite in that moment. Like, who are you, sir? Right? It's that sort of thing that is happening. Who are you, Lord? And then Jesus responds, you know, that I am Jesus. He communicates clearly. Now, here's what's so mind-boggling, and here's for, we got to put ourselves into the story of Saul. Saul was a good Jew, and a good Jew would have believed the words that were spoken in Deuteronomy, that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so the expectation that he would have had for a Messiah would have been one that would show up and would show up in the way that he anticipated they would, with all power and might, overthrow the Romans, restore them, the, the nation of Israel to this position of prominence and power, all of that. And so the very fact, it was, no one was debating this, like Jesus was hung on a tree. So in Saul's mind, it's very clear. You're hung on a tree, that means you're cursed, therefore you can't be the Messiah. So why are these people following him? It doesn't make any sense at all. Unless, of course, Jesus actually is alive. Unless, of course, he actually defeated death. Unless, of course, he wasn't hung there as a curse for himself, but he was hung there as a curse for us. That he was dying in your place and in my place and the curse that should have been pronounced on us and the death we should have died, Jesus died in our place and now he's the risen Lord. And this is the encounter that Saul has with Jesus. It's the reality of the resurrection. It's the hinge on everything. Like if you're exploring Christianity, I'm all for questions and things, but where you need to start and where you need to dial in is did Jesus rise from the dead or not? If he did, you have to listen. You have to submit. There's no other way around it. If he didn't, then who cares? We can debate all kinds of other Bible stories and things like that. Did this really happen? Were there animals that came in two by two? We can talk about all those things, but if you don't deal with the reality of the resurrection, then what's the point? Paul says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're gonna die, all right? Just get on with it. But the resurrection changes everything. And now Saul has encountered the risen Lord, and it humbles him. And so you need to ask yourself, because in this moment, he's starting to realize, I've built my life. I've built a thing in a particular way, and maybe those secret doubts now are getting exposed. He's like, oh, I had the right pedigree. I had all this. I was following all the rules, and yet there's, there's something that's not quite right. And he's realizing kind of the starkness of his situation, like, oh, I'm persecuting Jesus. I'm an enemy of a holy God. I'm not perfect. There's this conviction of sin. Have you been humbled by the risen Jesus? I love the way John Stott talked about it in his, in his commentary. He says this, think about it. Think about the bravado. He is marching day by day towards Damascus, papers in hand. I'm going to arrest these followers of the way. I'm gonna make, sure, make their life a living hell. I mean, that's literally what he's dialed into doing. Now look at the contrast. He 
marches with the bravado and then has to be led into the city, helpless, by the hand. He can't see anything. Here's how Stott says it. He who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. There could be no misunderstanding what had happened. The risen Lord had appeared to Saul. Have you and I had this encounter with the risen Lord? If we have, it humbles us. We realize I'm a sinner that is in need of God's grace. So we talk about this transformation. We long to experience it. And so one of the things that is like one of the major components of it is like you have to have an encounter with the risen Lord. Do you know Jesus as the risen Lord? Have you wrestled through the implications of the resurrection? I think there's good reason to believe in it. The very fact that people would give their lives for why would you do it? Why didn't anyone ever recant? Like, no, no, we made it all up. Like, why would you make up a story that literally just resulted in you losing everything? Unless, of course, it was true. Now, we also see, look with me at 10 to 17, there's another component of transformation. And there's this man named Ananias, not the same Ananias that showed up earlier in the book of Acts, all right? He was not raised from the dead, okay? And this is a different one who is a follower of Jesus in Damascus. Look what it says, beginning in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. What a great posture. And let's also recognize, he kinda, I would imagine he starts out, here I am, Lord, and then, and then the Lord tells him what he needs him to do, and it would have been like, uh, get someone else, Lord. That's kinda where the story goes here, all right? And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street that is called Straight, then at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. This is how strong the reputation of Saul was at this point. Word had gotten to them in Damascus. And Ananias is like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm, I'm, you're asking me to put my life on the line to go lay my hands on this, this person? Like, you, clearly you've got the wrong person. And it says, verse 14, and here he has authority for the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, and the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. God works through his people. One of the things we've been looking at in the book of Acts is how we are called to bear witness. I want to encourage you in this. This is a beautiful, beautiful demonstration of how God works through the faithfulness of his people. It doesn't mean the people up until this point have been perfect or never did anything wrong. That's not, that's not it. But I will need you to connect the dots here to see that one of the ways transformation happens is God working through the care, the compassion, the, the sentness, the, the outward facing, like we need to move toward people. And so the first thing I want you to see is this. If you remember the story, I mentioned it a moment ago, Saul was there when Stephen was being murdered. The first martyr of the Christian church. Saul is presiding over it and is really rejoicing over it. And he hears Stephen. What does Stephen pray? Because one of the first things I want us to see is the first thing here is, apart from just God's sovereign plan, which is the initiator, it's God as the activation, one of the people that he used as part of this caring community, Stephen was praying for Saul. 
certainly the others who were throwing the rocks, but his prayer was, Lord, forgive them. He's asking that they might come to experience forgiveness. And now what's happening in Acts chapter 9? The Lord is answering Stephen's prayer. Stephen's dying prayer, what was on his, you know, like on his tongue, what he's pronouncing as he's literally as the life is leaving him and he's being connected to his Savior and Jesus is welcoming in, is please forgive them. And now what we have here is an answer to that prayer. Stephen's prayers mattered. Your prayers matter. And Stephen wasn't there to see, oh, look, look at God's work. And he wasn't there to pray the prayer with him and, and see Saul get baptized and become a follower of him. He wasn't there in physical flesh and blood. Sure, he was in heaven and he's rejoicing over all of it. But his prayers mattered. Your prayers matter. Are you engaged? That's why we're trying to encourage us as a church. Like, who are three people that you're regularly praying for? It'd be more than three. It'd be less than three. But like, who are you praying for? So it starts with the prayer of Stephen. And then I also see Ananias, who, right? I mean, I think we'd all be in the same spot. Here I am, Lord. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Um, I don't know if I want to go and, and do that. And he moves. And I don't know in this whole process, at what point did Saul cross over from death to life? I think at the point, though, when Ananias goes there, Saul is still thinking through. He's got three days in the darkness. He's got three days where he can't see. I believe he's thinking back over his story. He's thinking about Stephen. He's thinking about the encounter with the risen Jesus. He's trying to make sense of it all. And then Ananias goes up to him, puts his hand on his shoulder, lays hands on him, and says, Brother Saul. That there's this willingness to invite him into the family Maybe a way to think about it is there's this sense of belonging that he's experiencing that precedes the moment of belief for Saul. Because after this, there's a prayer. After this, the Holy Spirit, he's, Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. We know at that point he's for sure a Christian. He is for sure a follower of Jesus. What would it look like for us as a church community to continue to move toward people? That doesn't mean we don't confront them and say, hey, you need to believe in the risen Lord Jesus. That truth actually matters. But there also is this sense of, can we move towards people? Do you move towards people? Like, think about it for Ananias. He had to believe, there's no way. There's no way this guy who's breathing out like murderous threats against the church is gonna become a follower, all right? There is somebody in your life right now that you believe no way that person's gonna become a follower of Jesus. Or when that person does become a follower of Jesus, when they show up at your church, they show up at your community group, is your posture gonna be like, hey, we're welcoming them in, let's move towards them, let's see them be further discipled, or is it gonna be this kind of skeptical, I don't know if it's real or not? There's this call to move toward people. And then look at this as we close in 18 to 20, then I think what we see with Saul is a double conversion. It doesn't mean he gets saved twice, but this idea here of him meeting the risen Lord Jesus, having his life transformed, and then this conversion, he's got a whole new purpose for his life. Instead of using that energy to destroy, he uses that energy to see the church of Jesus Christ built up. Look at verses 18 to 20. It says this, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. Let's just look at this as we close. In this transformation of Saul, that there's this immediately, he finally can see. And one of the things I think we need to examine and ask of the Lord and just think through how the Lord works is that being blinded by Christ is actually the only way for us to see rightly. 
he gets blinded by the glory of King Jesus. And in being blinded by the holiness and the majesty of Jesus, what is exposed is his need, his unrighteousness. That's why Paul would later write in the book of Romans, Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He understands that he's a broken person. Even in those moments where he wants to do the right things, like I don't have the ability to even carry this out on my own. That is the condition of the flesh that nothing good dwells in me. And it's not just for Saul. It's for me. It's for you. And when we get a sense of the holiness, the grandeur of King Jesus, that he has risen, it begins to expose, oh my goodness, how unholy, how unrighteous I actually am. And it's in that moment that we're starting to actually see. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Listen, like in that moment, like blessed, do you understand the poverty of spirit? that we're completely bankrupt. And so we see that here. And Saul is able to start to see. I think it's also important in our cultural moment to make sure this is, this is I think, a really key thing. Salvation is about more than just sincerity. Here's, here's what I mean by that. No one can knock the sincerity and the devotion of Saul to his Jewish upbringing. But just because he was sincerely devoted to it doesn't mean he was right. He was sincerely misguided, wrong, and on a pathway to hell. That's the reality, the harsh reality of the situation. And so there is a cultural moment that we live in that says, hey, as long as you believe in this, as long as you've got your view of this, as long as you, you know, want to talk that way, what works for you, that's the important thing. And that is not in line with the scriptures. There's an actual crucified king that is Jesus who went in the tomb, who rose again, who ascended, who is coming back. That's the story. And so... The sincerity needs to be around that story, not just being committed to anything. And so this is where, let's look at this, Philippians. These are the verses that follow Paul's sort of pedigree. He says, whatever gain I had, this is Philippians 3, 7 to 9, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he's like, my whole resume, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what he's saying. At the end of the day, everything I gave my life to, when I started to really see, I realized that it was all rubbish. It was a giant pile of dog poo. I mean, that's literally, you can, that's the exact translation there, all right? That's what he's saying, all right? He's like, it doesn't matter. It's inconsequential. It, I, really, I'm gonna bring this as like, here, God, here's what my offering. Like, get that stinky mess away from me. That is what is being communicated here. And he looks, and he's like, what I need is not a righteousness that I can earn, but the righteousness that comes from Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty that we deserve. He bore the wrath of God. The curse that should have been pronounced upon us was put on him. And we get the righteousness that comes through faith. This is the transformation. This is what it looks like. And then you have Saul immediately goes out into the synagogue and begins to declare who Jesus is. There's a submission to Jesus and there's a submission to his mission. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been saved by him, but has he, is he increasingly Lord of your life that you're giving over these areas and saying, I, I'm not gonna hold on to that. I'm not gonna construct my view of Christianity that just kind of fits my sensibilities. Lord, I wanna give it all to you because that's the best possible place to be and to join his mission. Like, 
here's what I want us to do. We're going to reflect for a moment. I'll close this in prayer. Let me read you this, this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man. Because there is this tendency, I think, to want to just keep investigating. And we're pro-investigation and questions and searching and all of that. But Lewis has these beautiful words where he talks about, yeah, but how far are you going to take it? Maybe today is the day that you stop trying to see through everything and actually see who Jesus is. He says it this way. He says, but you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. The Lord Jesus has revealed himself. The resurrection is real. He's inviting you to know him. And he's inviting those of you that do know him to tell more people, to point them to the ultimate reality. This is what we're created to see. So let me pray for us and give you a moment to think through what is it that the the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, is calling you. What do you need to repent of? Where is God not big enough in your own life? Maybe there's something that he's asking you to relinquish that you're holding on to, thinking, I need that thing. And then I'm gonna give us some instructions how we're gonna rejoice in the salvation that we have. So let me pray for us, and I'll give you a couple moments. Father, thank you for this remarkable story of transformation. And I thank you, God, that as remarkable as it is that for any of us that are here as followers of you, the same thing has taken place, that we've encountered the risen Lord Jesus, that we've been convicted of our sin, that you have brought us from death to life, that every single story of conversion is an absolute miracle that should just floor us, that should drive us to greater worship and appreciation for who you are. And so, God, I pray for those of us that are followers of you, that that would be our response. That you would lead us in a time of repentance and of relinquishing the control that we think that we have. That we would trust you, that we would surrender to you, that we would be about your mission. And that we would know and celebrate the great work of the gospel. And God, I would pray for any here this morning, God, that are wrestling through these things. I pray that they would come to a point of actually seeing you, Jesus. Would you reveal yourself to them? It doesn't mean every question gets answered in, in one moment, but I pray that they might know, Jesus, that you are real and that you are doing something and that they would stop kicking against your work in their life and would surrender that they might know you. God, hear our prayers now for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.